CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, April 17th, and today we are talking about a topic that I think many of us can relate to. There was an op-ed from Bloomberg going around all week called Money is Losing Its Meaning. And the central thesis was that while the U.S. may not be on a Venezuela-style crash course to hyperinflation, it is risking faith and trust in government-backed money by just creating so much seemingly out of thin air. And this is not a perspective that's limited to Bitcoiners. This is infiltrating normies where people start to ask these uncomfortable questions about markets and economy and money itself when the government can seemingly just make more of it for anything they need. The author of that piece, Money is Losing His Meaning, is Jared Dillian. Jared is the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, which is a markets and economy newsletter that has been publishing since 2008. Before he started writing this newsletter, Jared was actually a trader with Lemon Brothers. He has a really interesting and diverse background, and I wanted to bring him on to discuss what's happening in the markets right now, why money is losing its meaning, and what it means for all of us. Now, Jared has an interesting story vis-a-vis Bitcoin as well. I first came across him last year when he wrote a very interesting thread around how he was a former Bitcoin skeptic who has become a believer. Central to that point, and I'll let him describe it himself in the interview, but the key piece is that it was never skepticism of the underlying, it was about the bubble during 2017 and 2018. He ends that thread with a sentiment that I think many of us share The need for stateless money has never been higher. This is a great interview, a really good conversation. We talk about everything from buybacks to market rallies to the Fed and so on. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, as always, long interviews are edited very, very lightly. So knowing that, let's dive in. All right, we are back with Jared. Jared, thank you so much for hanging out today. Thank you for having me on. Glad to be here. Awesome. Just for context, uh, I'd love you to share a little bit about your background and what, what formed your thinking, your writing. You know, now I know what you do primarily is uh, writing and content creation, but tell us a little bit about how you got here for people who may not be as familiar with your work. Actually, I had a completely different path coming out of college. I went to the Coast Guard Academy and I was, um, I was an officer in the Coast Guard for five years after that. 
And while I was in the Coast Guard, uh, I got my MBA part-time from the University of San Francisco. And I also got a job on the Coast Options Exchange as a clerk on the floor. So I got to see the whole dot-com bubble you know, up close and personal. And from there, uh, I got a job at Lehman Brothers in New York. I was in the associate class of 2001. For seven years, I worked there. For the first three years, I traded index arbitrage. And the last four years, I ran the ETF trading desk, which was a really big job. When I took over, I think we were ranked like seventh or eighth in terms of market share. Uh, I grew it significantly at the end. We had, I think we were ranked second in terms of market share. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And after the bankruptcy, you know, the whole time I was at Lehman Brothers, I was writing a lot of market commentary, just Bloomberg messages. And they kind of like they went viral. This is before things went viral. So I had a pretty big list. And uh, I started the Daily Dirt Nap, which is the newsletter I'm still writing 12 years later, which is a macro sentiment based newsletter. And it's grown about 10x over that time period. And it's um, that's what I do today. I do some other stuff. I write newsletters for Malden Economics. Um, I used to write opinion pieces for Forbes. Now I write for Bloomberg Opinion. Um, gosh, what else? Uh, you know, there's uh, and I have uh, I have another venture which is uh, a personal finance venture. I have a radio show called the Jared Dillian Show, which is currently on five stations and uh, trying to grow that syndicate. So that's kind of my my other line of business right now. The the life of an independent content creator, right? Yeah, uh, you got, yeah. You got, put it put it out everywhere and and kind of try to bring it back. But no, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, you know, I think a lot of folks in the Bitcoin and crypto space um, are, you know, they get a lot of their information and perspective uh, from this sort of class of of independent content creators. So you know, always excited to have uh, have kind of this this type of voice on, on the podcast. Um, so uh, speaking of Bitcoiners, I know. That uh, that you had kind of a, a journey with Bitcoin, and for a lot of the folks who know you in the Bitcoin community, uh, they they got to know you through a, a thread from last year. But I'd love to hear just again for context for for people who don't know as much about you, you know, you kind of shifted your perspective a little bit from uh, call it late 2017, early 2018 to towards the end of last year. So tell take us through that journey. Yeah, I mean, I was. Um... I, I never was in doubt of Bitcoin or the technology. My feeling in late 2017, early 2018 was that it was a massive bubble. I mean, this is, you know, when I invest or, you know, when I write, uh, m- my focus is on sentiment. And I'm really, really good at spotting extremes in sentiment, whether it's extreme bearish or extreme bullish sentiment. And, you know, what I saw towards the end of 2017 was extreme bullish sentiment. I remember the thing that pushed me over the edge at the time. I had this, uh, there was this woman I went to high school. In fact, we were, we were, she was my girlfriend in seventh grade (laughs) or maybe eighth grade. She was my girlfriend in eighth grade and we're friends on Facebook. Now she is divorced two times. Uh, she lives off alimony and she's a piano teacher. Okay. That's her income. And she sent me a Facebook message asking me if she should buy Bitcoin. And I said, oh, my God, like this is (laughs) this is the this is definitely the top. So I was very I was like a very noisy Bitcoin bear. Um, And I was I was pretty public about it, like on Twitter. And there was a lot of Bitcoin. There was a lot of crypto people that were, you know, coming after me and, 
and it, it was a little bit ugly. Um, but like I said, my, I never had any objections. I'm not anti crypto or anything like that. I just felt that it was a huge bubble. Um, and it's gonna it's gonna sound I'm gonna sound like you know I'm calling tops and bottoms and showing off and like this is like an ego thing, but it's really not. Um, but you know after after the price went down for a while. Then I started really doing some work on it. And I said, you know, this is really interesting. Um, and I started to warm up to it when it was around 4,000. But I didn't actually pull the trigger all the way until it was at 10,000. But um, it was around that time that I wrote that tweet storm, which uh, which kind of went all over Twitter. Um, so, you know, especially in this environment, you know, all the money printer go burr and all that stuff, like everybody gets it. Like, you know, we are living in an MMT world right now, and I'm also a gold investor. So I have, you know, I, pro- I probably have like 10 times as much money in gold as I do in Bitcoin because uh, I'm a little bit old school. But still, like, you know, that's kind of when I started to warm up to it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think that you're right. Uh, this this moment is having a lot of people uh, kind of perk up and ask these fundamental questions about money that folks who are interested in Bitcoin uh, tend to ask, right? And um, I, so it's interesting. Let's uh, one of the things that I wanted to do is your last three uh, uh, op-eds for Bloomberg have been uh, have been really interesting. They've all been kind of in the larger context of the uh, the lockdowns and the coronavirus crisis from an economic standpoint. So the first one uh, was from late March, and it was about just how weird safe havens are. Being behaving. Now, that's evolved a little bit since then, yeah. uh, obviously, in terms of how gold is performing. But you know, what have you noticed in terms of, uh, in terms of this question of safe havens? I, even, I saw a Wall Street Journal article today about how investors are freaked out because safe havens are going up at the same time as stocks are going up. Well, I mean, uh, the, the focus of that piece was I was talking about how people's perception of safety it, it has totally been turned upside down. You know, if you go back, if you go back six months ago, if your mom walked into an Edward Jones office with seven hundred thousand dollars and told the Edward Jones guy, the financial advisor, that she wanted to be in something safe, he would have put her in stocks. Okay, mm-hmm. now he would have put her in like you know high dividend stocks or value stocks, whatever. But he still probably would have given her an allocation in a hundred percent stocks, and. Basically, you know, in the early part of this crisis, nothing, nothing was working. I mean, you had days when bonds weren't working, stocks weren't working, gold wasn't working, and everything that people thought was safe had been totally turned upside down. And now, you know, gold has rebounded a lot since then. Bitcoin has rebounded some. Um, I mean, that's, you know, when you're talking about definitions of safety, like that's what I think is definitions of safety things that you can't print, things that you can't create out of thin air. So I would say, uh, gosh, 30% of my portfolio is in that type of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And we're seeing, you know, the, the numbers are starting to roll in with, I think, the, the highest percentage of, of cash in portfolios since September 11th. And, you know, uh, so I guess I'm interested in your in your kind of larger take right now of where we are in the life cycle of this uh, crisis from a from a market's perspective. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of pain in the, the kind of pure economic sector of people being out of work. Yeah, I think from a market standpoint, I mean, 
uh, I don't want to get too deep into the Federal Reserve, but they've there. The Fed has effectively. This is the place if you do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, the Fed. I mean, the Fed has effectively backstopped the credit markets and, by extension, the equity markets, and the bond market and the mortgage market. And it really, like, you know, there's a lot of traders out there who are saying, "Well, we can retest. We can go down. We can go down to 1800." It's really, it's not possible. I mean, the Fed has spent about $4 trillion on this, and this idea that they'll spend $4 trillion and not another trillion if they have to is kind of absurd. Like, they've, you know, they're all in, and uh, it, I, I think that, I mean, look, like, one of the things, you mentioned my piece uh, in the 10th Man today about uh, chaotic neutral and that kind of type of stuff. Like, you just... Your only choice is to play along as distasteful as you may find. If you are morally opposed to what the Fed is doing, that's fine. But you have to play along. Yeah, I, I loved your line. Uh, the last line of that piece was, yes, capitalism is ending before our very eyes. It is unspeakably awful. Might as well make some money off of it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I think it's a it's uh refreshing perspective to be able to uh to, to be able to hold um agnosticism in terms of kind of uh how you engage with the markets in and not have that be mutually exclusive from your principles in terms of the way that you think things should be right but like you only have so many vehicles and you're voting with your writing right your content uh in terms of those principles and in terms of what you stand for and the type of uh policies you want to see while also you know being kind Kind of clear-eyed and uh, and like I said, you know, agnostic about what the the actual context is. Yeah, I think you have to trade things not as they should be, but as they are, and that's that's really the crux of it. One of the things that I uh, that I noticed also from that piece, uh, and uh, or maybe it was a, a, an earlier piece of yours, but um, you talked about uh, buybacks. And one of the things that we saw sort of more at the beginning, right before everyone got focused on the stimulus package, was that buybacks had started to become a uh, – the 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 kind of boogeyman right uh, the 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 blame uh, factor for uh, for for part of this do you see that continuing as we get kind of out of the immediate urgency do you think that we're going to have a, a different conversation about buybacks is that going to be a political football basically yeah it is I mean I think I think a lot of things um, first of all we've known for a long time that buybacks were the source of most of the gains in the market Torsten Slock at Deutsche Bank put out some charts. This was back in like 16 or 17 and showed that pretty much all the gains in the stock market were coming from buybacks. Okay. Now, um, and a lot of people, I was opposed to buybacks on the grounds that corporations trade their stocks incredibly badly. They buy them back on the highs and then inevitably something bad happens. The stock goes down and they have to issue more stock on the lows. So they're buying stocks high and they're, and they're selling stocks low and they destroy value all the time. And IBM is the perfect example of this. I mean, before the crisis, IBM had $140 billion market cap and they had spent $160 billion on buybacks, more than the entire company was worth. So I think the political blowback here. You know, it was funny, like AOC had a tweet on this and, um, you know, about the airlines, about the airline buybacks, how they spent 96 percent of their free cash flow on buybacks 
and now they were getting a bailout. And I, I, I looked at the tweet and I was like, son of a bitch. Like, I actually agree 100 <laughs> percent with AOC on this. Like she she absolutely nailed it. And, um, you know, a lot of the buybacks were, you know, explicitly for the purpose of enriching management, for sure. You know, so I think I think the smart thing to do would be like if if we were in uh, a 1980s Reagan Volcker world, we would eliminate taxes on dividends and make dividends and buybacks equal from a tax treatment standpoint. So then, so then companies would pay more dividends. But really, what where we are right now is where we're moving towards uh, getting rid of buybacks and also discouraging companies from paying dividends. Anything that rewards shareholders at all. If you look at dividend swaps in the United States, uh, we're projecting that dividends are going to be down forty percent in a year. So it's actually not just buybacks; it's dividends as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this gets into another conversation a little bit, which is what the political will to make any of these real changes is going to be uh, after this, right? In the in the wake of this, like let's say we get the economy back to, to something that's uh, turned on, and uh, we're, we're actually looking to elections. Like, it's hard for me to imagine exactly where the will is going to come from for anything that isn't just the easiest soundbite or, or or tries to find someone easy to blame, you know. Well, I think in the case of buybacks, I mean, I, I think I understand where you're coming from. Like, uh, you know, there was a point there was a, a point in time in our history back before about 1983, I think, where companies couldn't do buybacks because it was considered manipulation. And I, I actually I wouldn't be really that sad if if buybacks went away. So, um, you know, it's a it's a knee jerk, stupid, po- you know, political reaction to what happened. Uh, in this case, I would actually sort of agree with it. Like I said, I think there's better ways to do it. But if, uh, you know, if tomorrow we decided to make buybacks illegal, like I actually wouldn't, wouldn't be sad about it. So, yeah, no, I I think that that, that that's right, that it's, it could be the, the, instance of that sort of reactive or hyper reactive uh, instinct uh, working, you know, uh, working out ultimately. Um, I was thinking about this also, though, in the context of your, uh, I think it's the middle of these last three pieces, the coming tax bill will be large and ideological. And effectively, kind of where you're landing is that uh, in a in an MMT world, as you've put it, uh, which would be interesting for you to define a little bit, uh, just the way that you see that, um, tax rates will be driven entirely by ideological concerns rather than practical concerns, such as revenue collection. And I thought it was interesting, uh, particularly in the context of um, Ray Dalio tweeted yesterday. I believe that the as the after the coronavirus subsides, we will begin to talk about how we will pay the multi trillion dollar bill for the stimulus package and who should get what in this new world order. That will be a defining moment because we will see. See, uh, then see if we can do it with mutual consideration and sacrifice, or if we can't, and we'll fight instead. Uh, if we can do it together smartly with consideration, it will be great. If we can't, it will be terrible. And it's just hard for me. I read that. My first instinct was like, are we really going to have that conversation? It feels like we're just going to not, you know, we're going to kick that ball down the field. But yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about kind of this take of yours about uh, living in an MMT world. Well, I mean, basically, you know, with the two, so our, our budget, we were, we had about a $5 trillion budget and we were collecting about $4 trillion in revenue. So we had a $1 trillion deficit. 
So that deficit is about 5% of GDP, which is high, but not, I mean, it was much higher during the Obama years during the uh, financial crisis. So it was high, but still sort of manageable. So we just spent two trillion on the stimulus. Uh, Trump tweeted that he wants to do two trillion on an infrastructure package. Uh, my guess is we're going to come back to the student loan issue at some point. That's one point six trillion. My guess is also that we're going to do another stimulus package at some point. That seems in the cards. So you could actually have uh, two thousand twenty. You could have ten trillion in spending and four trillion in revenue for the government. Um, and there's no amount of taxes that you could possibly collect that could pay for that. It's not an issue of taxes. In fact, tax collection in that scenario is incidental to financing the government. And how the government is financing itself is by issuing debt that the Federal Reserve buys with printed money. So in effect, in an indirect way, the Fed is is directly financing the federal government. And that is the definition of MMT. So in an MMT world, if the government is sort of freed from these constraints and they no longer have to depend on tax revenue to finance themselves, if they're all doing it through the central bank, then you could set tax revenues wherever you want. You could set them at zero. You could set them at 100%. You could set them at 50%. And so in that world, the whole discussion on where taxes are is going to become purely ideological because in ordinary times, there's practical concerns. If you raise taxes too high, then people avoid taxes and there's distortions. If you lower taxes too much, then you don't collect enough revenue. But all these practical concerns go out out the window and all all of our discussions about taxes going forward are going to be about inequality and economic justice. It's interesting because, and I think this bridges into the the last piece, which is the thing that like I've, I've been wanting to invite you on for a while. But when I read this last piece, it's like I, I got to get you in like right away. Um, money has no meaning anymore. Uh, money is losing its meaning. So uh, the the interesting thing that I've noticed is as the um, as the forms of uh, of engagement from the Fed get increasingly more exotic, is the way that one uh, one, one Bitcoin investor has put it. Uh, you're seeing this really interesting thing happen where people are asking questions like, "Well, if they can just do that, right? If they can just authorize." billions and billions, trillions of dollars for seemingly anything they want, why the hell are we paying taxes? And by the way, why not student loans? And why not mortgages? Why why does anyone pay for anything? Right, and it's this intellectual slippery slope for people that uh, you know, as as folks in the folks in the Bitcoin community are slapping their hands on the table and being like, "See, this is what I've been screaming about like a crazy person." But for a lot of folks, there is this. There's the new the Overton window on what the hell money is 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 opening in a big big way. I'd love to hear what inspired this money. Money is losing its meaning post because I think that really hit the nail on the head. Well, part of it was just the big numbers. I mean, part of it was you know, and we kind of went through this in 2009. In 2009, um, the Obama administration under Larry Summers passed the $780 billion stimulus, and which was massive at the time, an $800 billion stimulus. And here we, we, we passed a $2 trillion stimulus. And basically, the first thing that came to mind was the, these numbers are becoming so large that they are not really having any meaning. And uh, pretty soon, we're not going to be talking about trillions. We're going to be talking about quadrillions. I mean, it just becomes, and like you said, it's a slippery slope. It just becomes all imaginary. 
So that was sort of the genesis for that piece. Yeah, it's a it is a really interesting. I mean, I guess where what do you think from a the the piece and and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but it felt to me like your first order concern in the immediate term wasn't uh, the USA turning into Venezuela, right? Hyperinflating. It was more the the loss of faith in in the money system, right? In in the currency as a whole. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, a lot of people uh, focused on the Venezuela part of the piece, and they, you know, because I, I said there's, you know, we are not going to turn into Venezuela for sure. Like I've, I've known some Venezuelan expats. We've had this discussion. The U.S. has much stronger institutions. I mean, yeah, we could get there, but it would take fifty to a hundred years. So uh, that's not really a relevant discussion. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I think I think the piece. It's really just the loss of confidence in money. And that this is there was an interview with Paul Volcker. I can't remember who did it. It was PBS. PBS did an interview with Paul Volcker like back in the 80s. And Paul Volcker basically said that one of the government's primary jobs is to instill confidence in money. And that's one of the things that the Federal Reserve is supposed to do. And I think what, what the, the thing that motivated that piece was we are at the early stages of a loss in confidence in dollars. We're at the very early stages of it. And that's what motivated that piece. How do you think that that uh, – because it feels like we have this weird two, two kind of uh, – conflicting forces going on right now. On the one hand, the whole world is desperately trying to get into dollars, so much so that we're even seeing in the crypto space, uh, you know, billions flowing into USD stable coins, right? But on the other hand, you have all of these conditions, which to your point, uh, are creating the context for people to lose faith. How do you know, how do you see that battle playing out? Or is it just impossible to tell because it's we're in such new new territory? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a group of people out there who are really bullish on the dollar. They they talk about a shortage of dollars and they talk about capital flows and stuff like that. Uh, I don't. I'm not really an expert on those types of issues. Um, and it's 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 not just that. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that the dollar would appreciate versus other G10 currencies in this environment. So I guess from a trading standpoint, I mean, like being long the dollar is not unreasonable. But I'm just talking about a loss of confidence in the fiat money system in general. I mean, this is something that crypto people have been talking about, like you said, for years. And like now it's it's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the really interesting things we've been doing on the show is uh, is kind of trying to keep track of second order and third order impacts, right? So uh, things that are triggered because of this. So a couple that I've noticed you discussing that I'd love your take on, just because I think everyone right now is trying to make like we, we've gotten to the point of acceptance that this thing is real. Uh, you know, the 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 impact is going to be significant, uh, and now people are, I think are trying to make sense of and, and process how, right? So uh, so two that I noticed. Uh, one had to do with uh, savings and spending habits. So you tweeted something to the effect of uh, you think that consumption patterns are going to be permanently altered. Uh, do you think that that's? Do you think that this has been enough of an impact that people will start to actually save in a different way? Yeah, I mean, our savings rate right now is eight percent, which is low by historical standards, but it's not the lowest. The lowest it got was two percent in two thousand six. But still, our savings rate um, is pretty low. And, I, you know, look like we've all been living inside for the last month. So 
my consumption patterns have changed. I look at my credit card bills month over month and they're down 60 to 70%. And everybody I talk to is the same thing. And what people actually like my brother, who I would characterize as a free spender, he really likes to spend money. He called me up the other day and he's like, he's like, you know what? Like I'm saving money and I like it. Like I'm actually putting money away. And I think for the first time in a long time, people are seeing what it's like to save money. So I I don't think we can expect that, you know, after the lockdown ends and everybody goes back to normal, that those consumption levels are going to return to what they were before. I think we're going to get to 70% of what they were before. And the economic impact is going to be massive. I mean, people have estimated that you know, out of all the restaurants that have closed down in the U.S., 100,000 of them are going to stay closed. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it's absolutely true. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, we're radically underestimating is the number of small businesses and sectors that are just going to get wiped out because they just couldn't deal with how long this went for. Or maybe they were teetering already and decided to pack it in, you know. Uh, it's It's I think there's going to be a lot of carnage in, in that space that I don't know if we're pricing in at least on kind of a, a, a mental level yet. So the the other um, the other second order effect that I noticed a discussion of uh, from from you on Twitter had to do with colleges. Um, this is something that we've talked a lot about uh, on this show as well. It's it's hard to imagine the university system returning to anything that looks similar to what it was before. Yeah, I mean, and colleges and universities have been very poor stewards of capital. I mean, it's been a big bull market in in higher education, and uh, they haven't, you know, except for the schools with big endowments. I mean, most colleges are completely unprepared for this. They haven't put anything away. They don't have any reserves. And, I, you know, I was discussing this today with my wife. Uh, she works in higher education. You know, there is going to be a, a little bit of a factor where some kids do go to school or stay in school because the their job prospects coming out of the crisis are going to be pretty bleak. And that happened in the financial crisis. The, the number of people enrolled in colleges actually went up. But from a long-term perspective, in terms of just the, the actual act of learning in a classroom, I mean, that has just changed forever. And if you think about this, like p- when people think about how they're going to spend money on education, and they can spend $10,000 on the University of Phoenix or $80,000 on Stanford for the same product, which is basically an online education. And by the way, University of Phoenix is better at it because they've been doing it for years. Like the whole economic calculus just totally changes. I think what you're one of the things that you're going to see is um, almost like a uh, – uh, uh, a de uh, depackaging in some way of uh, of college where you won't think about it as this one potential purchase item, but it's like where are it, there's a there's a learning aspect, there's a credentialing aspect of it, and there's a social aspect of it, right? And those things can actually be unbundled to some extent. You know, like I think that you're seeing you're seeing so much activity over the last ten years in terms of uh, you know professional networks, distributed professional networks that do a lot of that networking where you used to only have your your college or your alma mater, right? You have, uh, you know, cities just playing the role of that that social impact for a lot of people. And then you have the, the credentialing, but the, the part of the problem, I think, fundamentally with the, the university business model over the last 30 years is that uh, everyone was sold that, that, that uh, basically... Uh, 
the the middle and lower tier of colleges sold the same value proposition that the top did when it's just not the case from a from a credentialing standpoint you know you're not going to get that value that return on investment yeah and a lot of the a lot of the middle and lower tier schools actually had the same price point as the higher tier schools which is the thing that's kind of strange um the unbundling is absolutely true i mean a lot of people were going to school for the social experience i mean they were going for the fancy dorms and the swimming pool and the climbing wall and, you know, all the, the luxury gym and all that stuff. And, you know, once you unbundle that and you can say, okay, this is the part, this is the, this is how much I'm spending for the education piece. And is it really worth the extra $70,000 for all the rest of it? I think people are going to come to the conclusion that it's not. So, I mean, when you talk about, I mean, if I were to put a number on the number of colleges and universities that would actually fail in this environment, I would say it would be 20 to 30 percent. Yeah, I think it pushes a lot of places over the edge. And then I think actually in some ways, like just the idea of a university failing will probably trigger a lot to actually think about it. Right? That's like an unthinkable thing right now. But again, I feel like that's one of those Overton window shifts where uh, all of a sudden people will not just assume that all these these universities that have been there forever will be there forever. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of these discussions are being had in every school in the country right now, and basically these budgets were on a razor's edge before, and they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, like even if our enrollment is flat, we're going to be down X number of millions of dollars just because of all the revenue we lost at the end of uh, the spring semester. So, but, you know, enrollment is probably not going to be down. Enrollment is probably going to be lower. And then you have to think about places to cut costs. And there's like easy places and hard places. And it's, you know, uh, they're going to have to look at athletics, which people haven't looked at in the past. They're going to have to look at administration, which they haven't looked at in the past. So even for the ones that survive, it's going to be very, very hard. You're, you know, a big part of your job is to to sit back and try to observe everything and understand how they all, how all, all these factors come together. Are there other parts of the market that have been particularly interesting to you or more of these second order effects that you're thinking about kind of going forward? Or is it more uh, just day to day trying to understand the latest developments? Well, I will say that um, I don't know about second order effects. I can tell you that um, what the Fed is doing in the credit markets is kind of at the front of my mind right now. I mean, it's explicit support of the credit markets. And, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened in history. I don't remember. I think it was like 2014 or 15 that the ECB started buying corporate bonds and people thought that this was this temporary liquidity facility. And guess what? Like six years later, they're still buying corporate bonds. You know, actually, it was longer than that. It was like 2012. And so they went from the European financial crisis all the way to um, Greek bonds trading at negative yields, right? So what the Fed is doing right now is not going to be over in six months. It's not going to be over in a year. They're going to be buying credit for years out into the future. And if you, you know, I, I think those distortions that like what the ECB caused are going to happen in the US. And I just think it's, I, I think that's really the easiest trade out there is to be long credit. What do you think for for those who are just trying to wrap their head around this? How does this shake out in terms of what do the distortions look like? I guess is a way to ask the question. Well, I mean, going into this, um, 
you know, high yield spreads were so low, your typical high yield bond, your double B bond was trading at about three and a half or 4%, which was incredibly low. And then in the early stages of the crisis, they got out to about 10%. I mean, it'll get back to those previous levels and lower. Like, the Fed support of the credit markets is unconditional and it's going, it's, you know, it's like with QE. I mean, we started QE in 2008 and we didn't end it until 2017. And along the way, it created a huge amount of distortions. You know, one of the things that people were talking about with QE back then was that how it created inequality because basically QE made asset prices go up and the people that owned assets were people who had money. So it actually, it, QE was the primary driver of inequality. That was one of the major distortive effects. And, you know, there's going to be distortions that come out of this that I can't even comprehend right now. In all this, uh, you know, because I think a, a, a lot of folks share some of these concerns, what has you right now uh, most pessimistic and most optimistic looking forward? Uh, I think what ha- what has me most pessimistic is uh, the arguments that we're having about the shutdown and what, you know, like it's like anything else, like it falls along political lines. Like there's a lot of people who are clamoring for an end to the shutdown. They tend to be conservatives. There are lots of people who want uh, the shutdowns to continue longer. Those, those tend to be liberals and there's not a lot of common ground there. And I'm sort of like looking ahead to an environment where there's, you know, there's a showdown between the federal government and the states. And it just it, that makes me very pessimistic. Uh, the, the part that I'm optimistic on is, you know, I I think that we will find, um, you know, one of the things I said in one of my 10th man pieces was that the PPE that that hospitals needed, they were going to get the PPE that they needed the free market, the invisible hand provides whatever people need at low cost. And that's happening. You, you saw all types of entities creating masks and stuff like that. So that that fixed. The same thing is going to happen to the vaccine. I think we're going to get a, get a vaccine earlier than expected. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic as to how, how the virus is going to play out longer term. It's interesting. One of the uh... We've talked about this a lot uh, in the past few few weeks, but one of the things that's really, um, I think, optimistic for me too is that in this context where uh, there's more reliance in some ways, at least from the markets, on the government than ever before, you're not really seeing people necessarily just kind of like turn over and and uh, like slide slouch into dependency culture, you're actually seeing the opposite effect for a lot of folks where they're finding this resilience and investing in community and figuring things out because they just can't wait, you know? And and I think that there's a a lot of people who are going to come away changed from that and, and do interesting things. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is, none of this is being centrally planned. Like, you know, Trump is not a dictator. Um, th- this is none of what's happening is being directed by one person anywhere. Uh, this is it's it's the market. It's happening collectively. And it, like you said, it's people acting individually to serve their own best interests. And that's how we're getting through this. Where can people find uh, more of your ideas if they want to they want to keep track of all this? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Daily Dirt Nap. Uh, I'm, a con- I'm a contributor at Bloomberg Opinion. You can read my editorials there. 
My newsletter is called The Daily Dirt Nap. It's, I've been publishing it since 2008. You can find that at www.dailydirtnap.com. And if you want to subscribe, you can you can reach out to me there. Love it. I guess actually one last question since you've been writing this since 2008. Do you have I mean it's it might be so hard to tell but how does the your gut sense or feel of this crisis differ from 2008? Uh man, I you know it was funny because when I was at Lehman Brothers, uh, I ran a proprietary trading book, and um, you know, I was I was part of a a group of people that was you know I was actually betting against the housing market. I was you know buying, I was like shorting the subprime lenders and doing all that stuff. But I vastly underestimated how bad it would get. And I remember there was a moment when I was sitting in my office on Third Avenue when I just started my newsletter. And I had my business bank account at one of the banks. And I looked at my Bloomberg and I looked at the stock price at the bank. And immediately I thought to myself, my money is actually not safe in the bank. Right. And that was like, that was a terrifying experience. That was an absolutely terrifying experience. Um, that, that absolutely nothing was safe. Now we went through this a couple of weeks ago, but I think, I think we're out of it now, but you know, the financial crisis started in the summer of 2007 and it ended, you know, the, the stock market bottomed in March of 2009. I mean, there were stretches of weeks and months of that kind of fear. Uh, and it seemed like it went on forever. And this is a little, this is a, this is different. I mean, the difference today is that, you know, back then with the financial crisis, we knew, we kind of knew how it was going to play out. We knew that there was too much leverage in the system and we had to deleverage, but this is something totally new. We've never dealt with this before. There's no model for it and there's a lot of unknowns. So I think that makes this a little bit more scary. Jared, I really appreciate you hanging out. Uh, I'm sure the audience did. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're a great host. Thanks for having me on. One of the things that I appreciate most about Jared's perspective is the dispassionate analysis. The ability to hold simultaneously extremely principled positions, but also not get swept up in them. I think it's a really important way to look at what's happening right now because people need to be nimble. We need people to be able to act. And if we get caught up too much in our ideology, it can be slow moving for us, right? It can actually impede us. I think that it's often unpopular to not push forward with your kind of extreme points of view on social media. I hope you enjoyed that perspective from Jared. I know I did. It's Friday, guys. I hope that even though the days have sort of lost meaning for a lot of us, that you're looking forward to the weekend. You're going to spend it with people you love. So until next week, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.